The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in the fourth chapter, reading this morning the first three verses, the first three verses in the fourth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I read the three verses together because they have uh, one message in them, as you notice. And yet I want this morning to deal only with the first verse. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. We thus uh, resume our studies in this uh, great and mighty epistle. For the sake of those who are statistically minded, it may be of interest to notice that this is the 100th time on which we have done this together. I am attempting this morning to preach my hundredth sermon on the epistle to the Ephesians. That reminds us of the riches of this particular portion of Holy Scripture, with its depths and its heights and its glories, which have thus been keeping us and holding us Sunday by Sunday for so long. Now, this morning we come not only to a new chapter, but uh, to a new section of the epistle. This is not merely, I say, a fresh division, in the sense of division into chapters, but it's clearly the beginning of a, a major division. This epistle, like most New Testament epistles, can be divided into two portions. And here we are beginning to look at the second half of this great epistle. Very conveniently, it's divided, you see, into six chapters and into two portions of three chapters each. Now, the first section, uh, which we've been looking at, the first three chapters, have been, of course, entirely doctrinal. The apostle has been unfolding and displaying in that marvelous manner the great and essential doctrines of the Christian faith. We've really been looking at it almost all. Certainly everything that is central and vital to an understanding of the way of salvation and the ultimate object of salvation. It's all there. There is no greater display of the doctrines of the Christian faith than in these first three chapters of the epistle to the Ephesians. But now, having done that, the apostle here moves on to the practical application of all that. And he goes on to show the relation of all that to daily life and living. So that we really are at a most important point in this great epistle. And there is that very real division. And yet I must point out at once that though that is perfectly true, we mustn't make too much of it. We mustn't press it too hard. Because we shall find the moment we come to the fourth verse in this 
fourth chapter, that the apostle again goes back to doctrine. I've often said this about him. I don't know what you feel about a thing like that, but I always particularly like the great apostle for that. He never could uh, indulge in these absolute divisions. Why? Well, because in the last analysis, you see, you can't separate doctrine and practice. And it's the little people with their small minds who think they can do so, who always miss the glories of the Christian faith. Now, Paul was resolutely determined, obviously, here when he used this word, therefore, that he was now going on to nothing but application. He has laid down the doctrine, it's now got to be applied. But you see, even the moment he begins to do it, back he has to go and say, there is one body and one spirit, as ye are called, in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. He's back again in the midst of doctrine. But he doesn't stay there. It only helps him to bring out again this practical application about which he is now concerned. So, I, I, from the standpoint of the mechanics of his method, I just have to add that in brackets. We are really starting with a new major division and section. We've come to the realm of practicalities where the apostle is making a great appeal to these Ephesians to put now into operation the things that he has been teaching them and the things that should inevitably follow as a natural consequence from an understanding of them. Very well. At this point, I feel like asking you a question. Because, uh, as I see things, this is a very uh, essential part of preaching. Uh, how do you feel, as I thus announced to you, that we are now going on to consider the practical application? Many of you, most of you, have been here while we've been dealing with that mighty section at the end of chapter 3. Do you remember those heights of God on which we've been living for so many Sundays, when with all saints, having been strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner men, and having Christ dwelling in our hearts by faith, we have been trying to comprehend what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that we might be filled with all the fullness of God, and we have looked at this might and strength and power of his, this strength of which we are told that it is exceeding abundant above all that we can ask or think, and again, this power that works in us. Well, now there we've been, on the very summit of the delectable mountains. And now I'm announcing that we are going to consider the practical application of all this. We are going to come and consider what all this indicates with regard to our daily life and living. I ask my question, how do you feel? Are you feeling rather sorry? Do you feel that the next three chapters are going to be somewhat of an anticlimax? Would you have preferred it if I had stopped my exposition at this point and had gone somewhere else in the scriptures to pick out again these great experiences, these exalted moments in Christian life and experience. Tell me, how do you feel? It's a very practical question and a very important one. I wonder whether there's anybody here who feels like Peter felt on the Mount of Transfiguration. 
You remember, don't you? Oh, how natural it was. I understand him very well. There he was, Peter and James and John, with our Lord, and our Lord was transfigured before them, and they saw him in the glory and the marvel, and the voice from heaven, and Peter said, Lord, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. Let's stay here. Let's spend the rest of our lives here. It's so marvelous. I know what's happening down at the foot of the mountain, and I know it's misery and wretchedness. Can't we stay here? Can't we spend the rest of our time here on top of them? Let's make three tabernacles. Is there somebody who feels like that, I wonder? Well, let me be quite frank and honest with you. I had something like that as a feeling. And I experienced the temptation to do something like that. And yet, you see, to do that is something which is quite fatal, something against which this great apostle warns us. And he does so through the medium of this word, this most vital and essential word, the word therefore. We have no right to stop at the end of chapter 3. These divisions into chapters have been made for our convenience, and we should be grateful for them, but you know there is a sense in which they can be really dangerous. The apostle didn't write under chapter headings like this. He wrote one letter, and he meant us to read the letter from beginning to end, right through. And here, of course, as I say, he almost commands us to do so. And our business is to follow him. I, therefore, come along, he says. And it is our business to go after him. As our Lord was not willing that there should be those three tabernacles on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration, but uh, said, no, we've got to go down again to the valley. And there he knew that there would be that father with that poor boy tormented of devils cast into the flames and sometimes into the waters. As our Lord said, no, we can't stay here. We must go down. We must go back into life. We must go down to help and to relieve, to apply it all. So the apostle here invites us to follow him as he leads us on into the practical application of all this great doctrine that he has been opening out before us. Well, now then, I say that he does this through the medium of this word, therefore. And all I am anxious to do this morning is to draw out for you and with you some of the things that are suggested by this word, therefore. What does it suggest? What does it teach us? What does it imply? I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you. Well, the first thing is this, and in a sense I've already been more or less dealing with it. It is a word that in a very practical way tells us how we are to read the scriptures. And you know we need to be taught how to read the scriptures. And the principle is, as I've been indicating, that we must never pick and choose in our reading of the Scriptures. We must read all the Scriptures. We must read every part of the Scripture. Of course, we don't like to do that. We are like Peter. There are certain favorite passages. There are occasional Psalms or occasional portions here in some of these New Testament epistles or certain pictures, perhaps, in the Gospels, we like them and we delight in them. We are always moved when we read them. And, of course, the danger and the tendency is to be ever going back to those. It's quite fatal. That is the high road to the developing of an 
imbalanced and lopsided Christian life and the Christian experience, there's only one thing to do with the Bible, and that is to read it right through. And we ought to be reading it constantly right through. Not leaving out anything at all, but just going on and following it and being led by it. Because if we believe it is the Word of God, we believe it is all the Word of God. And therefore there is a meaning and a significance in every part. Yes, the historical portions, the genealogies, they're there with a definite object. So therefore let us go through them, I say, and read them all and try to grasp them all. Or let me put this in a different way. There is nothing that is so dangerous as to extract certain verses or certain paragraphs from the scripture to wrest them out of their context and just to look at them isolated in and of themselves. We must never do that. You see, there's a danger to do that, of doing that with this third chapter that we've just finished, to go back and to go back in it and glory in it and revel in it. But we mustn't. The context, I therefore... I must apply this, I must go on. I mustn't isolate that great passage. I must follow it out. I must consider what leads up to it. I must consider what follows it. And therefore, while there may be a certain value and advantage in having texts upon your wall or a daily text or a collection of them in a book like Daily Light, let us never forget that it can be extremely dangerous. Because there is a balance in the scripture. There are qualifications in the scripture. Now this very section we are looking at illustrates all that. There is this inevitable connection leading up to, following on. Well then I mustn't take this alone. I must take it in its complete setting. And of course it's the simple truth to say that most of the heresies that have troubled the church throughout her long story have rarely arisen because people have just forgotten that simple principle. They've taken a text right out and have formulated a doctrine out of it. If they had but taken it in its context, they would have been saved from that. Well, I don't stay with this. But I think this word therefore reminds us this morning of the wholeness of the scripture and of the importance of taking it in its entirety and not simply stopping at certain points and indulging in artificial divisions. Very well, let me hurry to a second matter which is more important still. This word, therefore, is a conjunction that leads us on and points us to the life that we are to live in the light of the doctrine that we have considered. Now you will find, and this is a general point, you will find that in all the New Testament epistles, at a point corresponding to this, you generally get this word, therefore. Every single epistle. All these epistles, you must have noticed it often, I just remind you of it, you notice that they start with doctrine, invariably. They lay down their fundamental doctrines, then, having done that, they say, therefore, in the light of this, because of this, and it follows. Now, this is clearly and obviously one of these vital and fundamental points. And therefore, I must divide it up just a little and put it to you like this. 
there is always the danger, and particularly to some people, of forgetting that Christianity is, after all, a way of life and a way of living. Of course, there are some people who emphasize that alone, and they don't know anything about doctrine and are not interested in doctrine. They just regard Christianity as a system of morality or of ethics or something like that. I'm not talking to them. I'm dealing rather with people who are evangelically minded. And our danger, surely, is this. To some of us, the danger is to stop at doctrine only. Some people, you see, are naturally intellectual. They've been given minds uh, by God above the average, perhaps, and they're fond of reading and fond of studying and fond of reasoning and fond of handling these great and massive and mighty truths and doctrines. And, of course, their particular danger is to spend all their time with doctrine and to stop at doctrine. They read the doctrinal portions of these epistles and then having come to the end of chapter 3, they say, of course, there is practical application. That's obvious. I know all about that. And they don't read it. They stop with the doctrines. They read books about doctrines, books and theology and so on. Of course, it's all excellent. It's essential. But it can be the very snare of the devil if we stop with it and if we forget this. Therefore, We all must have known such people. There have been such churches. There have been such denominations in the past history of the church. There have been bodies of Christian people who spent all their time in discussing and arguing about and emphasizing doctrines and they've forgotten the unbelieving that are round and about them. They've forgotten to put it into practice. They've sometimes been so absorbed by doctrines that they've even quarreled with one another and have been denying the very doctrines that they believe. I'm sure that I needn't stay with this, but it is a very important thing for us to remember. Doctrine comes first, but we don't stop at it. Then there's another group of which we can say this, that their danger is to stop with the experience only. You can't read a portion like the third chapter at the end and all those wondrous possibilities that were there open to us of knowing this love of Christ in an experimental manner and having our hearts moved and ravished by the manifestations of his love, of being filled with all the fullness of God. Ah, there is nothing so marvelous in life as to know these moments, yes, these ecstatic moments, as it were, of the height of Christian experience. And how easy it is to feel that nothing else matters and nothing else counts. There are people in the history of the church who have spent the whole of their lives in just seeking experiences. You see, it was in a sense the danger of the monks and the hermits, and there have been many evangelical monks and hermits. There have been people who are mystically inclined, and they've just gone out of the world, as it were, and they've been seeking these marvelous experiences and manifestations. And they've been so busy about that, they've done nothing else. As the one man does it with the doctrine, the other does it with the mystical type of experience. And so, I say, both of them are neglecting this important word, therefore. This word, therefore, safeguards us against all these possible dangers. 
Let me put it to you in another statement which was made by this same apostle in writing to Titus. Listen to him. He is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ and his death upon the cross. And this is how he puts it. Who gave himself for us. Why? That we might have a wonderful understanding. That we might have some strange, ecstatic, mystical experience. Not primarily. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and separate or purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. There it is. And indeed our Lord himself has said this. He says, if ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. Ah, my friends, to know doctrine is a very responsible matter. To have high and unusual experiences carries with it a very dread responsibility. If we really do know these things, well then I say more is expected of us. To the man that has much is expected. To him to whom much has been given, much is also expected. Very well, I say, if we really have been grasping this great doctrine, let us remember This word, therefore, we are not to stop there, we are to go on to the practical life and living, to the ordinary day-to-day application of it all. Oh, it's been marvelous to be up on top of that mountain, but we must come down, I say. There are the valleys and the people and the Son and the Father and all the problems of life, and here is this godless world round and about us. And how can it know about Christ except you and I tell it about Christ, either by preaching or by mixing with them in our works and employment and our ordinary avocations in life. We must go down and back and thus show what we know and what we have and above all show him in whom we have believed. Very well, that's the second thing that is done by the word therefore, but let me hurry to the third. And this again is a very vital one. The word, therefore, reminds us that the life which we are to live is a life that always results from the application of the doctrine. Now then, here is a matter that I must underline. Therefore, not only tells me that I've got to go on to the practical life and living, it tells me that the character and the nature of that life which I am to live is one that is determined by the doctrine and results from the application of the doctrine. Now, we can never attach too much significance to the order in which the apostle puts these things. You notice that the first three chapters are devoted exclusively to doctrine. Doctrine must always come first. We must never reverse this order. It is the invariable practice in the New Testament itself. Not life first, doctrine first. We must never go on to anything until we are clear about our doctrines. That is why we spend so much time with them. Now, that is, as I see this teaching, the most vital principle of all in connection with the doctrine of sanctification. 
So that in a word we can say this, that this word therefore introduces us to the doctrine of sanctification. May I make this perfectly plain and clear. In all that we have been considering hitherto, we have not considered the doctrine of sanctification at all. I hear that certain people have thought that in dealing with chapter 3 towards the end, I was dealing with the doctrine of sanctification. I was not. I haven't touched sanctification in this epistle. I am now beginning to do so. Here is the word that introduces us to the doctrine of sanctification. The sealing of the Spirit is not sanctification. To know the love of Christ is not sanctification. To be filled with all the fullness of God is not sanctification. Well, says someone, what is the relationship? Well, I can put that very simply like this. Those are things that promote sanctification, that encourage sanctification, and give us motives for sanctification, but they are not sanctification itself. Here then are the principles which I would enunciate at this point. In the light of this word, therefore, we must say that sanctification is not a gift to be received. It is rather something that has to be worked out in the light of the doctrine. Not a gift. It's a therefore, a therefore I beseech you. It's an imperative. It's a command. Not a gift. In the same way, I argue that sanctification is not an experience. Because the apostle puts it in the form of an exhortation. Therefore, it is important that we should understand the relationship of these things, the one to the other. All these great experiences which the Apostle has been referring to and about which he has been teaching us are simply designed to encourage us to seek sanctification and to work out our sanctification, our salvation, with fear and trembling. It is these things, the doctrine and the experiences, which provide us with the motive for sanctification. It is they that are meant and designed to create a desire within us for sanctification. It is they that are designed to show us the possibility of sanctification by reminding us of the power that works in us in order that we may work it out. You see, there is the apostle he's been telling us, now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. There it is. Well, now, having reminded us of that, he says, in the light of that, now then I beseech you, work it out. Put it into practice. Put it into operation. I wonder whether I'm making this relationship plain and clear. May I use an illustration that I believe I used when I was preaching on the sealing of the Spirit. I can't think of a better one, so I use it again. The relationship between experiences and doctrine on the one hand and sanctification on the other, I would put like this. The moment we are born again, our sanctification begins. The moment we receive the seed of life, new life, well, that's there and it begins to have its operation. I can't take Christ in parts. 
Christ has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. I can't take him as justification only and then later decide to take him as sanctification. No, no. He's a whole Christ and he's indivisible. And the moment the life of God enters into me, the process of sanctification begins. Well, here's my illustration. Think of a farmer sowing seed into the ground, or if you like, a gardener sowing seed into the ground. Now there's life in that seed. He puts it under the ground, and he may roll over that ground, and there it is, it's buried. And you may well think, well, that's the end of it. It's finished, it's dead. No, it isn't. The life is there, and it begins to to sprout and to germinate and to grow, and still you see nothing until at last it just appears above the surface. A little green shoot, there it is, just appearing. You can scarcely see it, but it's there and it's life, and you know it's going on. Uh, But then, unfortunately, there's a patch of weather, such as we're having at this moment. There's no rain, and uh, it's still a bit cold, and there isn't wonderful sunshine. Uh, But you see, there's still life there. The process has started. But suddenly, there's a change in the weather. There are some wonderful showers and some warm, glowing sunshine. And you know, you must often have seen it, you can almost see that little plant growing. You can almost see it springing and sprouting up. What's happened? Ah, well, you see, the life was not in the rain and in the sun. The life was in the seed itself and in the little plant The value of the sunshine and the rain is that it provides a stimulus. It encourages it, it promotes it, it stimulates the growth. The growth was already there, the life was there. That is the function of the sun and of the rain. And it's exactly like that. With the experiences that we have in the Christian life, and with our understanding of doctrine, The experiences are not sanctification, but the experiences promote sanctification. When I'm near to the Lord, I don't want sin. When I feel his love, sin is abhorrent and hateful to me. That's how it works, you see. The experiences and the knowledge stimulate and promote and encourage. But the sanctification itself is not the experience. That is the result of the life that I've received And it is something which I now, in the light of all this, must myself begin to put into practice. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for, because of the fact, that it is God that worketh in you, both to will and to do, of his good pleasure. Very well. Now then, the apostle says that he is beseeching them, he is going to beg of them, he admonishes them. He doesn't just tell them at this point, you notice, that all they've got to do now in the light of this great doctrine is just to look to the Lord. You see, he could have ended his epistle so quickly, couldn't he, if he'd believed that. There would have been no need for three further long chapters. All he'd have said, well, now in the light of this, all you've got to do now is to look to the Lord and to let him live his life in you. It's quite simple. You just do nothing. You look to the Lord and uh, he will live his own life in you. That's all he need have said. But that isn't what the apostle says. He says, therefore, I beseech you. You see, my friends, that doctrine of sanctification, which tells us that we've got nothing to do but to receive it as a gift, or else to allow him to live his life, it bypasses the scripture. It's unscriptural. 
It cuts sections out of the scripture. Here in these three chapters, read them when you go home, you will find that the apostle enters into details. He says, let him that stole, steal no more. He tells them to avoid foolish talking and jesting and all. He goes into details. He exhorts them. He reprimands them. He commands them. He appeals to them. He argues with them. He issues his great imperatives. Why? Well, because... The teaching of sanctification in the New Testament is according to the order that I've been putting before you. It is not an experience. It is the outworking, the outliving in the power that he gives us and that is already in us of the doctrine that we have believed, the experiences that we have had from his gracious hand. It's amazing to me that anybody could ever go astray at this point. For our Lord himself said it once and forever in the 17th chapter of John. He prays and he says, sanctify them by thy truth. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. It's through the word we are sanctified. Therefore, in the light of the doctrine, therefore, that's sanctification. So that I can put it in this form. This is the way of sanctification. First and foremost, a full realization of the doctrine. We must see the way of salvation as outlined. We must see the things to which we've been called, the glorious possibilities that are here for us. And the more we see them and understand them and grasp them, the more we shall be ready and indeed anxious to work them out in practice. We shall see the inevitability of these things. We shall see their logical character and their logical order. Don't you see how failure to understand the meaning of this word, therefore, and its real message leads to an entirely false way of regarding the scriptures. There are so many people whose very ministry seems to be divided up like this. They preach an evangelistic message. Come to Jesus, come to Christ, be saved, accept salvation. That's one message, then they've got another message, quite distinct and separate. And the second message is this. It's just a constantly repeated appeal to surrender or to be willing to be made willing to surrender. Just a constant reiteration of surrender, and surrender and surrender. That's all that's necessary, and then sanctification will take place because he'll live his life in us. The evangelistic message, the message of surrender. And then Bible readings. And what's a Bible reading or a Bible lecture? Well, it's a sort of running commentary on the scripture whereby perhaps you can do the whole of the epistle to the Ephesians in an hour, or perhaps in five or six such hours, and you just make comments and you translate words, and there's no application at all. You're just given a division, and you're just, uh, uh, these things are docketed, and there they are, and you now understand you've got your analysis of the epistle to the Ephesians. And all these things are separate and unrelated from one another. I'm not being unfair, I'm not caricaturing. Isn't there much of such teaching? And if there is, it's due to one thing only. It is because they've never understood the meaning of this word. Therefore, 
No, no. These things are indivisibly joined together. I must never stop at merely dividing the scriptures. I must never come into a pulpit and not apply my message. I must never say, ah, I'm giving a Bible lecture now, I'm not preaching. I must always preach. Don't stop at the end of chapter 3, says Paul. Therefore, go on at the peril of your life and of your soul. Don't stop at doctrine. Don't stop at experience. Always have these things bound together in an indissoluble unity. You mustn't divide justification and sanctification. You mustn't separate salvation, being saved, and this further experience. They're one. They're always one. And the therefore is the chain that always holds them together. We must never do violence to the scripture in the interest of techniques or methods or particular experiences. Oh, may God give us grace, I say, to understand the meaning of this mighty word. Therefore, our sanctification is the inevitable result of the doctrine and the experience. Because of the life of God in the soul, it starts at once, and our business is to put the whole of our energy and activity into it. Work it out with fear and trembling. And why? Well, the apostle goes on to give us the reasons. I must leave it this morning. But it's all here. We've been called to this. That's why all that has happened to us has happened. Go back again and read your first three chapters. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in do you believe that? I challenge you, if you do, the therefore is bound to come into your mind at once. If you believe that, everything that is within you will make you long to be worthy of that and to rise to that. Do you believe, verse 10 of the first chapter, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him? Do you believe that it's God's purpose in Christ to reunite all things in him? If you do, I say, you'll say, well, very well, I must do nothing to oppose that. I must do everything rather to help that and to conform to that. Do you believe what he tells us in that 14th verse? where he says that the Holy Spirit is also the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession? Do you believe that God has made you an heir and a joint heir with Christ and that you're going on to that glorious inheritance? If you do, well, then you'll agree with the logic of John as well as Paul and you'll say this, he that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. You see, it's as we grasp the truth and the doctrine, the desire is created. 
If I really believed that while I was dead in trespasses and sins, God quickened me, sent his Son into the world to die for me and for my sins, that I might be saved from hell and might be saved for heaven. If I really believed it, I must say, love so amazing, so divine, demands its logic, demands my soul, my life, my all. I can't resist the logic. I must. And so we work through all the great doctrines which the Apostle has been laying before us in those first three chapters. And we remember that we are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. If I believe that, I believe that the reputation of my Heavenly Father is in my hands as I walk the streets of London and as I live my life in this world. And I have no right to live to myself. Therefore, the inevitable logic, the inevitable deduction, it's because I believe the doctrine that I want to be holy and that I want to be more and more sanctified. Be ye holy, for I am holy, saith the Lord. Well, my dear friends, you see the importance of this word, therefore? You see the importance of going on. Not picking and choosing, not consulting our feelings, but being led by this word of God that we may ever be to the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.